Lowell, meeting you is quite hard to forget. It's quite an experience. <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is Stu Starkey. He's blind as the result of a degenerative condition called choroideremia. He started losing his sight in his 20s, and Parasport taught him that he didn't have to be ashamed of his vision loss. Stu started out in able-bodied swimming and competed in para-rowing and para-triathlon. Also, he's a legit genius and pours his brain power and heart into the moving company Two Small Men with Big Hearts. Stu is passionate about giving back to the community, which is the motivation behind his podcast, Community of Big Hearts. Stu lives in Winnipeg with his amazing wife, Lillian, and daughter, Collins. He's a fascinating specimen. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Stu Starkey, welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities. Thanks for having me, Lowell and Julie. Since you told me about this, I've been looking forward to this day and hour ever since. Us too. <laughs> we have also been looking forward to this. You are a part of the beginning of my story. Back in 2015, when I was trying to get into Parasport, I got connected in with you. Do you remember our first meeting? From what I remember, Lowell, we got connected through our mutual friend, Jason, or yes. Jason, yeah, Jason and or Steven. Mm -hmm. They had set us up for a training session for paratriathlon because I was just thinking about trying to get into Paralympic sport to switch. I had retired from rowing and wanted to get into something else that I didn't have to travel and spend a ton of time away from home for. Thought, well, I can use my swimming background on triathlon, so why don't I give it a try? And so I met up with a local group to train with. And my first session was the same time that you were in Edmonton, I believe. That's where we met. I was in Edmonton for a work trip and yeah, just getting started in paratriathlon myself. So I was meeting this group for the first time and you for the first time. And we were doing a, I think it was just a stationary bike workout. And the energy Lowell brought to that workout was unlike anything I've ever experienced before. <laughs> I was pedaling so hard and loved every minute of it because he was getting up and whooping every time we were on the, the high spin cycles. And I was like, man, I, I wish I had this guy's energy. I'm going to try and hold on to him and be friends or training partners with him for a long time. Ah, so I think it's safe to say with, uh, I don't know if you can say this with two blind guys, but it was love at first sight. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely. I was drawn by your kindness, your inclusion of me coming into your world, and then also this connection to your story. And we're really excited to get into that story today, into what sport has meant to you, into the mindset that you carry, and now into the work that you do in your business. So how about you unpack this for us a little bit? Let's go back to Little Stu. Where did it all begin? Where did it all begin? I guess it was a summer day in 1982. <laughs> my mother had birthed me and I had a relatively normal upbringing. My mom passed when I was four. Oh. Uh, my dad raised me along with my grandparents. So I, I was really oh. blessed with the family that was around me and the attention, my, especially my grandparents were able to give me. I love to compete. I was a really competitive individual. The only thing that was really unique was that I didn't see in the dark. And so at night, I learned some coping mechanisms to get around and still socialize after the sun went down. Fast forward to when I was 18, I had learned at that point that I was going to lose my vision. My dad and stepmom had made an intentional choice to not tell me that I was losing my vision. They knew that when I was six. Oh, wow. That I would be losing my vision, but wanted me to not worry about it. So that's a blessing and a curse. I have no idea where I'd be today had they mm. told me when I was six or 10 or 12, how that would impact the decisions I made or the resiliency that came from learning at age 18, having that dropped on you. Mm -hmm. That was a difficult time in my life hearing what's going to be happening to me. And as I started to see some of the degeneration in my vision, I really started to picture how bad things can be. Mm -hmm. You really start to dwell on the things you're going to lose. That part of my life from 18 to mid-20s was tough because you start to go through these functional visual drop-offs and then plateau. And the drop-offs is where you really create this story that you're going to end up missing in your future life. Mm -hmm. So how much vision did you have during the day when you learned that you would be losing all of your vision eventually? It was mostly just night vision that I had lost. Okay. 
And it's such a slow progression of sight loss for my condition that I don't really know when I started to lose it. When I started to notice, I was about 20. So I hadn't noticed I was losing my vision when I was told I was going to lose my vision. And I just started to lose peripheral sight on my left eye at about age 20. And then it's been kind of creeping in on both eyes ever since. So how would you describe your vision now? My left eye has light perception, but I wouldn't be able to do any reading with it. I can kind of tell some colors, but I have a patch over my left lens. And that's because I have so little vision in my left eye. My brain can't overlay the two images. And so it gives me a headache trying to coordinate the two images. So the doctor's solution for that was just to patch it and not let that sight come through, not have my brain kind of challenged to overlay the two images. Okay. The right eye, I have about two degrees of visual field. And that visual field that I have is starting to lose the contrast. Unless there's high contrast and good light, it's hard to make out certain visual images at this point. Okay. So to compare that to you, Lowell, you have about eight to 10 degrees of central vision at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. So yours is an even more narrow tunnel vision. And what is your diagnosis? Mine's called choroideremia. It's a very rare condition that has very similar symptoms to RP, which I believe, Mm. Lowell, that's what you have. Yeah. It sounds very similar, losing the peripheral first, but it sounds also like yours has progressed relatively quickly if it didn't start progressing until your 20s. Yeah. And then now it's further than Lowell's. Hmm. So is this a genetic thing for your family? Yeah, it is. My particular condition's sex-linked. So the males portray the symptoms. The females are just carriers and don't display the symptoms. Okay. Also similar to Lowell's family. Yeah. X-linked RP. And so you're 18, you get this news. What does it do to you? What does it do to your mindset? Your life is changing. You start to focus on this future of not being able to see. How do you get through that time? You know, I just had a conversation about this yesterday and I didn't realize I still carried some significant emotions about this, Mm. but it was a session on inadequacies. Mm. And when reflecting on that yesterday with the perspective of that feeling of inadequacies and not fitting in, and worrying about even more so not fitting in the future. Mm -hmm. That was the hardest time. That was the darkest part about this. Our monkey brains go crazy trying to think about all the worst things that can happen. And I suppose it did really help me in the end. I think we're all highly adaptable, but through that adapting process is when my mind kind of goes crazy and, and comes up with those gloomy stories about what it's going to be like. And as soon as Mm -hmm. I stop losing that vision and plateau and and start to get used to the functional vision I have left, I reach a normality and I don't know any different. And I don't even really think about it when I'm in that plateau stage. It's this kind of ever repeating cycle. And I've got to learn through those drop-offs in vision that, Hey, I made it through the last one. It wasn't nearly as bad as my imagination was making up that it was going to be. And you start to go through this cycle and the, I'll call it depression, isn't nearly as bad each consecutive time that happens. Mm -hmm. There's this perpetual loss, the perpetual grief, each new stage, and then learning the skills. And so experiencing the grief, coping with it, finding your new normal. And each time you do that, it's like learning to jump that obstacle. You can use some of those same skills to transfer them to the next time the next loss. It's interesting. You talk about those skills that you learn. One of the things that was hardest for me during that time was the part where I felt I had to hide it. Like I was ashamed of it. Mm. I always tried to figure out how to not let people know I was different and there's different techniques. And I would like kind of guide off buddies in the dark and then I'd start using that technique during the day, Mm. but it became harder and harder to hide it. And I became even more and more like ashamed about it when Mm. I couldn't. There's a couple of things I want to talk about that helped me turn the corner. Mm-hmm. And it was parasport. Parasport changed me as an individual because I held this shame about what was happening to me as something that I was so embarrassed of mm-hmm. and felt like people wouldn't accept me. Joining parasport and the para rowing team and getting to meet individuals going through varying types of disabilities, it was so empowering to see these individuals handle their life with so much grace and pride. Mm. And I'm sure they had, you know, their own sort of insecurities and through training with the team and especially 
Victoria Nolan, who was also going through some sight loss, and she had a little bit more sight loss than I did at the time. And I got to ask her a bunch of questions and the things that go through her head and, and really started to understand that, you know, we all go through those kind of insecurities, but she looked so graceful handling all of it. And then when we traveled and went to the world championships as a team and saw hundreds of athletes with varying levels of disabilities and seeing all of those athletes mm. handle their lives with their head held high, so much grace and pride, man, I, I realized that I didn't have to live my life with shame. Mm. It's a really emotional thing for me to say. And I, I didn't realize it until yesterday that mm. I still carry that with me. The sense of shame of feeling different, like you didn't belong, like you're broken. That I was ashamed of who I was, that I had to hide a part of myself. Mm. That changed me, that experience. That helped me live without shame and gave me some pride. Yeah. And I loved Parasport for that. I really am a big advocate for anyone going through experiences with some sort of disability that makes them feel different. Man, Parasport is the perfect place for them. It was for me, and I'm certain the same was for others that I've met along the way. One individual that I met, uh, I was doing paranordic skiing, and a really quiet guy in a sit-ski and in a wheelchair. When he was 18, he had an accident that caused him to be in a chair, and when I first met him, he was so quiet, painfully shy, and after a couple of years of training on the team and seeing other people with these types of issues and getting some confidence through sport and getting on the podium, we actually went to Canada Winter Games together. And at lunch one day, everyone was chatting and having a good time, a few laughs. And, and he was just sitting there at one side of the table. And I said, hey, what's going on, buddy? Like, how come you're not part of the conversation? And I thought he was getting shy again and he was on his phone. So I said, what are you doing on your phone there? And he says, with a smile on his face, I'm on Tinder. Oh, so he came out of his shell a bit there. <laughs> he, he was out of his shell fully. Uh -huh. and, and just one of the transformations in front of my own eyes that I saw that helped another individual. Just such a great example of how transformational that can be. Mm -hmm. The power of sport to connect us, to feel that sense that we don't have to hide this part of ourselves. We don't have to hide that away and be ashamed of who we are. And Parasport has been magical in Lowell's life too. And I've seen it because I knew him before he was introduced to Parasport. We're very grateful for Parasport. Lowell, I, I really want to turn that question around on you and, and what experiences you had in Parasport. I think that's important here. Yeah. That idea when you were experiencing that loss, right? The world starts to look darker and darker. It starts to look more bleak and I resonate with you as well, speaking about that insecurity, right? We start to see how we're different, how we don't fit in, how we don't belong. And at the beginning to hide that away, that doesn't feel authentic, but we don't know what else to do. We're beginners, we're learners. We've never had this experience before. And for me, the future was sliding away, losing the ability to drive, losing the ability to do many of the things that I once was able to do. So when I was able to get into sport and realize that there was sporting available to help guide me. I had actually literally have a guide to do triathlon with that I could achieve these really amazing feats and, and be safe and have fun and be included. And then to get on a podium, it felt like I could belong. It felt like there was a space for me that this thing that I thought was my brokenness could actually be very beautiful, a special part of myself that I could bring and, and authentically be myself. And the people that has brought me into connection with you and we talked about the person who connected us jason and steven these individuals were really paramount in my life as i was kind of coming through to this other side going through that darkness of losing vision and trying to figure out what this next stage would look like the death of my sighted self into the birth of my visually impaired self Mm -hmm. And you might have experienced the, these same kind of questions, Stu, but Lowell has often been asked if he felt like a dog on a leash when he's tethered to his guide during paratriathlon. And what's your response to that, Lowell? No, I don't feel like a dog <laughs> on a leash, although that's a kind of a cool image. Um, <laughs> the leash helps connect me to another human being. It helps me be safe. It helps me to unleash my full potential in a race and giving all I got and I know that I'm there. I'm a part of something. I'm, I'm with somebody else. It's shared suffering. It's a shared experience and shared joy. And you don't have to worry about hurting yourself or somebody else. Mm -hmm. 
Paratriathlon is really neat in that sense. And if that question is asked of me, I don't think it was ever asked of me, but I've, I've certainly like asked myself that question. Am I feeling the full dignity of participating in sport, even though mm-hmm. I have a guy? And the answer is yes. And I hope Jason ends up listening to this. Jason is just the most phenomenal guide I could ask for. He was so understanding and he really, truly, authentically was a team member and not somebody that was like patting me on the head saying, you know, good job, Stu, for participating. Mm. We were trying to get everything out of our team and we were strategizing about that. And the dog on the leash of the person leading, hilariously, I was the one that was leading in the swim and I would guide off Jason who I was towing because I was a competitive swimmer. I, I had an advantage in that area. So we came up with a strategy for him to ride my wake and, and a little bit get pulled with the lead so we could go as fast as possible in the swim. Awesome. And when it came to the run, he was a much better runner than me. And, and I just tried to hold on and, and he would guide me as best he could. And coming off the bike, he'd be spinning harder at the final couple minutes. And I'd try and shake my legs out a little bit more because mm. he wasn't the bottleneck on the run, but he was in the swim. And so it was a real team strategy and Mm. I didn't feel like the lesser of the two. It was equal components trying to come up with the best result together. Mm -hmm. There's quite a lesson in parasport as well of teamwork, even in individual sports. When we're visually impaired, we have the guides, we have the teammates, and it is a trusting relationship. When you're swimming together in open water or biking together on a tandem bike or running and navigating, we are trusting this other individual And what was that like for you to put your safety in sport in somebody else's hands? I've done a lot of crazy things (laughs) in my life. I've gone skydiving seven times, traveled the world, being night blind and doing some, you know, irresponsible things along the way. You two are like the same person, I swear. (laughs) (laughs) But going 70, 75 kilometers an hour down a hill with a pilot that hasn't done a tandem bike before in Kona was one of the craziest things I've ever done. That would be terrifying. Oh man. Like just thinking about it now, we'd work our butts off to get to the top of the hill. And then each consecutive ride down, we tried to get faster and faster on the odometer. And it was a few minute ride down and we got traffic going to the left of us and the guardrail on the right. And and I had enough vision to see the guardrail and and that there was a drop-off there. Couldn't see how far, probably for the best. When we got back, that really scared the bejesus out of me. We got back, we pulled in to the parking lot at the place we were staying. Our front tire was flatted. (gasps) Thankfully, I've never fallen off the bike at speed, but I can't imagine how much that would hurt. And and I know, Lowell, you could probably tell me... Uh, I remember you falling off a couple times. Yes. But, uh, it, it scares me quite a bit. Yeah, it does look like it hurts, right, Lowell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you only had the one huge wipeout, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's something about going down on the concrete, and it feels like cheese in a cheese grater. So it's it's not fun. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> that was uh, a few chunks of skin missing out of various parts of his body. That's the beautiful thing about uh, not seeing very well, Lowell. You're, you're still as beautiful <laughs> oh, to me gosh. as ever. <laughs> Yeah, it's these crazy things. And I don't know if that's part of who we are and that was who we were before, loss of vision. I knew I was going blind right from a young age, so I don't know who I was before or after. But I've been the sensation seeker, the skydiving, the bungee jumping, the travel, trying to take these experiences while I still have the sight to do it and to feel the excitement of going fast on a bike, the excitement of racing. That is part of how I feel alive. And sport has allowed me to do that. So Stu, I'm curious with your swimming, since you came from a background of competitive swimming and you do flip turns and stuff when you swim lengths, I assume, did you ever swim lengths tethered and then flip? Because Lowell would hang himself if he did that. (laughs) The only time I ever trained together with Jason was in Sylvan Lake. We we go to his cottage and tether up and we train in a lake. So we never did flip turns. I swam able body Mm -hmm. growing up. There was many days where you're so tired, you just close your eyes. You know that black line, like the back of your hand, and you know exactly when you're to be flipping. So when I was growing up as a kid, there's some pools, and this kind of scared me. There were some pools that the roof was very dark and the flags would blend into the roof. Mm -hmm. So I have to count my strokes 
and make sure my strokes were spot on to be able to flip. And, oh. and the thing I was most worried about was the embarrassment of the fans, like or the parents and the, the swim teams seeing me screw up my strokes and go headlong into the wall. Ouch, yeah. Blow the, the wall there. So did you ever go right into the wall or? Oh, yeah. Oh, a couple oh, times. Okay. <laughs> so did you start swimming with a helmet? <laughs> uh, no, I just remembered that counting my strokes is real important. Not yeah. to blow that one. Wow. Yeah. That's a strategy that a lot of people wouldn't have to use. There's such subtle things with sight loss that even I didn't think of when I was trying to think of the worst possible outcomes. It was a few months ago where my vision got to the point where I can't see the toothpaste that I'm putting on my toothbrush. Hmm. How the heck do I do that? I had reached out to somebody at CNIB and they said, like, you guys must have a trick for this. And the gal said, yep, of course. And so she taught me that you hold your toothbrush and you put your fingers on either side of the bristles. And so you can feel the toothpaste Mm. going on to the bristle. And so now I'm not over toothpasting or missing it completely. Keeping your dentist happy. Good. Yeah. Just just simple little things like that in life that you don't think about that you take for granted about your vision. Yeah. So I imagine that you might pour a drink the same way that Lowell does. He kind of has his finger inside it. And then when the liquid hits his finger, then cup is full. That's right. Yeah, just these little subtle things. Yeah. Social cues are the toughest. That That's the thing that like I'm going through that part of my life right now for the last couple of years is different levels of social cues. So at first it was missing handshakes. Mm-hmm. People thinking I'm a jerk for missing their handshake and thinking that I don't want to shake their hand. And then there's certain like, I'll be in a networking session and and having a conversation with somebody. And there's like a a lull in the conversation. I go back to start talking to them again and they're gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and people think I'm, you know, a little strange there. Or That's the story I'm I'm creating in my head. I think it's a good tangent to go on here. You talked about dogs on a leash, Julie. That was kind of the next evolution for me in sight loss is I ended up getting a guide dog. At what stage of vision loss did you get your guide dog? I got nimble. I can't believe nimble. this is two and a half years ago now. Okay. I think I was about five or six degrees of vision. And like I was saying before, the vision loss happens so slowly and incrementally that you don't really realize how much you've lost. And then there's moments that kind of remind you when you walk into a signpost or whatever on the streets, or you bump into somebody, trip over a curb yeah. and you carry a little bit of stress around about that, but you kind of forget about how much that has accumulated. And when I got nimble, the first time I grabbed her harness, we were in San Francisco, we're just outside and they taught us the commands the day before. And I was like, so eager to give this dog a test. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. The weight that was lifted off my shoulders. Mm. I didn't realize the stress that I carried just by walking around and trying to navigate. I knew I had some, I didn't realize it was that much. Mm -hmm. It was the happiest day. I had in years. I felt like the guy in the Viagra commercial who was just like (laughs) whistling as he walked down the street. And it was two things. It was able to not worry about steps and curbs and signs and that kind of stuff. But more importantly, it was other people knowing that I had a visual impairment. It was this announcement to people Mm -hmm. that I didn't have to explain. I couldn't hide it anymore. It was an acceptance. And Mm -hmm. even more than that for me, It became a point of pride that I was unique in this way. Mm -hmm. And with a guide dog, it's so crazy the difference between a a sight cane and a guide dog, how a lot of people react to that. With a sighted cane, I find there's kind of a double take and there's a varying level of emotions Mm -hmm. that I could see when I first started using a sight cane. After that, it was kind of my wife telling me about different kinds of reactions But with the dog, I mean, everybody just smiles. Who doesn't love a guide dog? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was the second thing in my evolution here that changed my life. First Mm. was parasport and number two is getting a guide dog. Mm. Oh, wow. I felt similarly for Lowell when he got his cane. I was just so Mm. relieved that other people were then aware because I think you guys are both in the same boat too. You look totally normal. Like you don't look like you guys have a disability. So if you run into a kid who runs across, you know, in front of you on the sidewalk or something, if you don't have your cane or your dog, people might be like, oh, what a, what a rude man, you know? 
But if you have your cane or your dog, it's just like you say, it's announcing it without having to announce it. Yeah. Aw, nimble. She's awesome. She's sitting on my feet as always right now. Huh. With COVID happening, we've been going for less walks than, than I should be taking her for. Mm. We were busy enough to always do it for practical purposes and still keep her fresh. But okay. working from home as much as we do, we got to try and get out more for mm. fun. Yeah. So she doesn't get distracted by birds or squirrels or anything? They're like kids, you know, if you're not consistent, <laughs> they will try to push their boundaries. Oh, I saw a video a couple of years ago with this guide dog that was walking through the mall with their owner and the guide dog like pushed their owner into the candy store or like the like the dog candy <laughs> store basically. It was so funny. <laughs> Those little turkeys. Dog ball. They're smart. Yeah, yeah. So how old is Nimble? She just turned four on the 16th. Oh, happy birthday. So these things that get us through the dark times, that get us through these moments, for you it's been parasport, the amazing people in your life, and now this next stage of having this amazing animal, this guide dog that can guide you and be with you and help normalize this as well. I want to go back into that mindset. You're 18, going blind. Walk us through that stage in your life with parasport and beyond. 18, 19, 20 going through university, really trying to figure out my life. And I have this new motivation to find my purpose that adds value to this world. I have this worry that if I don't find that fast, I'm not going to be able to do it when my vision's gone. I did fairly well in school and it wasn't from a ton of effort. It did come fairly easily. And in the university with that motivation I had, I realized that, Hey, like I can't just do mediocre things anymore. If I really want to, to be an adventurer and have all doors still open to me, this is the story I'm telling my head that I needed to light a fire underneath my ass and get out there and achieve. And so I went into business school through business school, started taking on different kind of entrepreneurial endeavors, including playing online poker. And I set a goal for myself to try and be financially free by the time I was 35, because I was told that I could be completely blind by the age of 40. Mm. So that's the blessing that came out of all this for me was that it helped me deal with my complacency. I'm confident I wouldn't be where I am today, feeling as successful as I am without that impetus that I learned when I was 18. Mm -hmm. So after university, I took the money I'd won from playing poker and some other small entrepreneurial events and jumped into a moving company called Two Small Men with Big Hearts. Mm. My girlfriend and I, at the time, we'd been dating for a few months. One day I turned to her, I said, look, I, I met somebody at a poker table and I told them I wanted to volunteer for them because I needed something to do while I figured out what I was going to do when I grew up. And I loved entrepreneurship and I thought I could help them. And he says he couldn't take my charity, but he does have a business that I could manage out in BC. And I said to him, look, if I'm going to move with my girlfriend out to Vancouver, I'd like an option to own something, not just manage. So we were able to make a deal with wow. that guy that would try managing it for six months. And then if it was what he says it was, and we fit well into it, then we would buy it at a pre-agreed strike price. I did all that and then went to my girlfriend at the time, Lillian, who's my wife now, and said, <laughs> Hey, I know we went on a date for a few months, but are you good to move with me to BC to run a business? And with little hesitation, she said, yes. Hmm. So a few months later, we, we moved out to BC, not really knowing how to run a business of that size and not having lived in Vancouver before we got to work on running a business. Wow. That fire that was inside of me really helped because mm -hmm. I, I wasn't doing it in an eight hour day. Lillian can attest to this. <laughs> we bought an air mattress and slept at the office on the long days. I wanted to be there when the guys left in the morning and be there when the guys got back at night. And month end days, they were coming back like the last crews come back at 2 a.m. <sighs> and what's the point driving back across Vancouver at 2 a.m. to be back there for seven? So yeah, we just slept there oh, on wow. month end weeks and really poured our heart and soul into it. And I think it, it paid off and, and we had opportunities to pick up more franchises in Edmonton and Lethbridge and Calgary. And now we're in Grand Prairie, Saskatoon, wow. Winnipeg and Fort McMurray. I love that Lillian was part of that journey as well. So we get asked this question a lot. Did Lillian know the future of your vision when you guys got together? Yes, I had told her and it was apparent. 
I think I, yeah, I had hung up my car keys at that point in my life oh, Okay. Uh, about a year or two before, which was probably the most difficult thing I, mm. I had done. So how old were you uh, when you had to hang up your car keys? I was 23. Okay. 23, 24. Very similar yeah. to Lowell. Yeah. Yeah. Same age. Yeah. That's hard for a young man. Yeah. I mean, I, I pushed it. I was so independent and I definitely pushed it farther than I should have. My optometrist was an old school guy and he's like, I don't have the heart to take away your keys. You're going to have to do it yourself. Oh, wow. That's trusting. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I got some stories I'll tell you guys off air about (laughs) driving in the the later days. Driving by feel. (laughs) So uh, Stu, don't be modest here. You are legitimately a genius, aren't you? (laughs) No, I will never, ever say that. I've told my wife, it's one of my pet peeves when people call themselves geniuses. (laughs) So we'll just call you a genius for you. <laughs> You've been gifted with Geniality. memory and speed of thought. You have done very well for yourself and it's genetics. It's all these other pieces, but that fire mixed with the potential has come out and your drive to create a business, to create meaning and purpose in your life and to create something for your family. I legitimately feel I have an unfair advantage through the years of early twenties to early thirties in that I find, and I learned this through watching sport, that the really talented kids often squandered their talent in my sport and he was in swimming because they didn't have to train as hard. In the later years, when everybody kind of caught up to them Mm -hmm. in size and strength, the difference maker was effort. Mm -hmm. I imagine the same can be drawn for ability, potential, and then how hard people try in school The kids that don't have as much educational talent, Mm. they often make up for an effort. They spend more hours, they try hard, they learn different ways to overcome that. I did grow up with a natural math ability and able to kind of solve certain problems, but I had this complacency. I didn't want to be different. I wanted to fit in and compete in sport. So when I had this fire lit underneath me to achieve mixed with a blessing of some talents, problem solving and math, that that's the unfair advantage that I'm referring to that that's allowed me to succeed in in my industry anyways. You know, Mm -hmm. my competitors often, a lot of them are people who start off movers and they're great operators. They really know how to work with their crews and their trucks and, and run good four or five truck operations. But there is no moving company in Western Canada that that's the size that we are. Wow. Because it's difficult to scale. It, it takes a certain set of skills that I've been motivated to use to try and achieve. Mm-hmm. Really proud of what our team's achieved and, yeah. and also what I've achieved. Yeah, for sure. So what is your kind of day-to-day role now? It changes all the time. I had a vision when I started to keep growing the business so I'd always have a role in it. Even when I had no vision, I wanted to be able to add value and have a purpose in my life. And I'm really good at business. So I wanted to create that role for me, no matter where I am in my visual journey, that that I can fit in and do that, add value. So over the last 10 years, it started as me dispatching, doing sales calls, doing the books, kind of doing everything with, with a little bit of support. And then when we scaled to more than one location, you know, couldn't do everything anymore, had to figure it out, had to start just doing the tougher sales calls and making sure the business growth strategy was there. And then, you know, fast forward to now where we have, I just looked this up yesterday. We have 201 staff members that were paid last pay period. It's a lot to coordinate. You know, I I was never taught how to do any of this, but always motivated to keep figuring it out. So I still have a role to add value. And, And what that is now is business strategy and growth culture and community impact. Is Lillian still involved in the business too? Yeah, she's doing sales. Okay. She'd be a good salesperson. Yeah. <laughs> I'd buy anything from her. <laughs> <laughs> she's really a passionate person yeah. and loves being good at what she does. Awesome. Power couple. I really like yeah. that last segment where you were talking about this idea. I've heard it stated before that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And having this visual impairment, having this flame underneath you made you work hard and mix with your talents you've been able to, in your industry, do very well and move forward with your family. Before we move to the community aspect and kind of this new journey, I would like to check in. You've said earlier before about the struggle with the insecurities, and there's no place we get more insecurity as being a father and a husband. And how do you mix that with being a 
blind father and husband and these expectations of self. And also I'd be interested to learn how you felt when you learned that you were expecting Collins, because that was a really hard time for Lowell when I was actually pregnant and it became real that he was going to be a blind father. Hmm. I think I had slightly different experiences. I was ready to be a dad. Like I, I love to coach. And at that point in my life, I had built up this confidence to be a problem solver. So when I had learned that Collins was going to be Collins, a girl, there was a little bit of sadness for Lillian and I, because we knew that Collins would be a carrier of this condition. And if we were pregnant with a boy, then he would not have it and would not be a carrier. So it would end with me. There's definitely been some times where I feel the blind dad insecurity, you know, going out and kicking a soccer ball mm. with Collins. Would love to coach one of her teams as she's grown up here, but it's just not in the cards for me. And I try and remember that everyone has their own thing that they deal with and we all have our own inadequacies. So that part of it, I have been reminded for sure and felt those things, but haven't felt them super deeply. It really helps that Collins is one of the more empathetic kids that you can find. Mm. She is so caring. The other day, Lillian had gone out to hang out with her friends. Lillian had like left leftovers in the fridge for us to eat. And Collins has seen our routine of Lillian preparing the meals and dishing everything out. And so when Lillian left and it was dinner time, Collins jumped right into that role Aww. without me asking. And she even then said to me, she says, isn't it funny how like when mommy's gone, I'm kind of the mummy. Oh. Like I get to do this for you. That's so sweet. Aww. And there was so many emotions involved in that. And 95% of them were positive. Mm. And there was that twinge of like, oh, my daughter looks at me like I can't do this. So, I mean, there's a slight negative, but, but almost all of it was like, man, I have just an amazing daughter. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think the empathy and just what these kids, Collins and our boys are growing up with seeing you guys, first of all, what you overcome and still accomplish. And then also that empathy side, like they are willing to step up and help. They see that and they hopefully will see that in other people as well. Yeah. I talked about this a fair bit with some friends and they're raising their kids and just trying to figure this out because no one teaches us this. Mm -hmm. But we've been really fortunate financially and to have a family that, that's stuck together and, and healthy. Mm -hmm. I'm fairly aware of that fact that Collins has had a pretty blessed upbringing other than, you know, having to figure out this whole blind dad thing. Adversity can create grit from what I understand. So do you look at helping facilitate or manufacture adversity for your children? And this is one of those areas that I don't have to, you know, this is something that Collins is naturally going to see and mm -hmm. adapt to. And I'm really glad that th there is some adversity for her because she's had a pretty healthy, happy upbringing so far otherwise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Life will bring the adversity. We get to journey with them and witness it and explore it with them and allow them to feel the natural emotions that will come up through that process. Yes, the yeah, big thing is not protecting or sheltering people from that adversity, allowing them to experience some of it and, and normalize it. I'm just reading a book with Collins right now called How to Raise Successful People. Mm. Oh, wow. And it is a phenomenal book written by a woman who's raised three extraordinarily successful people and her principles that she used to teach her kids certain things, acronym of TRIC. So trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. Mm. Oh, wow. And the one that strikes me the most is independence. And well, I think a lot of people these days, a lot of parents these days have a bias to protect and coddle. And I was really fortunate to have learned a lot of independence when I was a kid mm. and learned to feel the pride of doing things, the confidence of doing things on, on my own. And, and we just started doing things like giving Collins like a small shopping list and sending her into the grocery store by herself. Oh, wow. She must just feel so grown up. Empowered. And she yeah. was so proud of herself. Yeah. Uh, what have you learned about life, yourself, the world? What have you learned from Collins and what have you learned from Lillian? That's a really deep question. Family is what you make it. And when I was growing up, 
as I explained, my mom passed when I was really young and, and my dad worked a ton. And so my family, you know, majority was my grandparents spending time with them and, and really blessed to have done that. I didn't have the traditional relationship, or I thought anyways, that other people grew up with. And having a more traditional family now, I thought, oh, like, I'm not going to know how to do this. And you just kind of figure it out. And the people in your life just fall in naturally into their roles on how they best know how to bring value for the family. And my wife is so caring and such an amazing caregiver and provider for our family. The love she gives is incredible. And I've learned how to do a bit more of that from her. I think I still got a fair way to go, but just her leading the way. And my daughter, like I said, she's just so empathetic. She cares so deeply about others and others' feelings. Watching her go through her life, navigating and asking such brilliant questions mm -hmm. that I don't have the answers to. Like, you know, I would love for her to get into sport, but she's like, dad, I don't, I don't really like competing because someone has to lose. Aww. And I was like, but, but then you can't like do sport, you know? And like, she's like, I, you know, I just love like doing the activity, but you know, I, I don't really like want to make somebody feel that way. Aww. So <laughs> I'm processing that still, like it, it really is fairly profound mm -hmm. and turn my competitive upbringing on its head. <laughs> and, and she's such a happy kid and really quite fulfilled without that aspect to her. And I realized that you don't have to be competitive to be a fulfilled person. Mm -hmm. Great point. Beautiful lessons. I love when our kids can teach us those lessons. Eh? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit humbling, but <laughs> we, can, we can learn a lot. There's, yeah. there's roles and there's souls. The role is parent child, but they're their own beings, their own spirits, their own soul, and they have their own journey. And they are sponges and it constantly shocks us to what comes out of their mouths and their insights and I mean, of course, there's a typical two little boys communicating with each other, gross stuff, but also <laughs> they can be profound. We got a sauna in our house and oh, nice. Collins wanted to come for a sauna. So she came in and, and we just got an opportunity to chat. I was really struggling with work in this time. And I said to her, Collins, I want your opinion on this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling work. I'm, I'm fairly stressed and you know, I'm not sure what I should do. How should I deal with this stress? And and she turned to me and she says, dad, what do you love to do? And that I was so insightful. Like mm. I was just so proud of her mm. to cut through the BS that I was giving her. <laughs> and she taught me that you should always follow your passion. Mm. Yeah. Listen to your heart. Yeah. So ever since then, she's wanted to go personas with me and give me more advice. Yeah. <laughs> my life. She's now an advisor. Yeah. Get her on the payroll. <laughs> I do believe that adversity creates these other opportunities, that the struggle is a setup for something in the future. And, and I think our kids are being marinated in a soup that is the culture of our family. And there are some ways that it's good and some ways that it's a challenge. I do want to hear now this next chapter. Mm -hmm. You've done so well in sport, in life, and creating the success for yourself. And now this word community, what does that mean to you? And, and what's this next chapter? I guess it's about four years ago now. My business partner and I had sat down for our first ever annual meeting. We want to formalize our business process and there's a template for us to follow. And one of the first questions is, what's the business's purpose? And, you know, I think we dedicated like four half days to this first annual meeting. And we took the first full half day on that question alone. Mm -hmm. We kept going back and forth on this because the problem that I was starting to encounter at that time in my life was I had set financial goals for myself, like I was talking to you guys uh, before about, I had to become financially secure by a certain age, so I didn't have to worry about that. And we had achieved that. We're fairly safe financially. Running a moving business with multi-locations is a fairly stressful business and industry to be in. And those tougher days were starting to take more out of me. And when I realized in that question, I was, what's the purpose of the business? I had lost my own personal purpose to the business. So when we were going back and forth on it, like what really gets us energized? What gives me energy? What helps me get up after a really tough day and have energy to tackle another one? Mm. And it was helping in the community, doing donated moves, using our skills that we've built up and the infrastructure that we have 
for good, we're able to do that better than anyone else in Western Canada. There's no one else in this region that can do it more efficiently for this many people that we can. So through that conversation, we decided to pivot our company purpose to growing our positive impact in our communities by using our skills, our experience, and our infrastructure. And that set us forward to doing more and more initiatives and donating in the community with our moves. And then these kind of conversations with people, I could feel the energy that the other business owners that I was talking to would get and other people. But I kind of key in on on business owners because I can speak the same language. I can lead by example by doing this. And I think I have a, a bit of credibility now that we've, what we ended up doing is creating our own podcast from there. Instead of having one-on-one conversations with business owners to try and inspire them, now I get to have really inspiring people on the other end of the phone or in front of me that we get to videotape and then play for other people to hopefully leverage and magnify that inspiration that those other people and, and hopefully myself are giving others. It really helps me with my personal purpose. It really helps me with my sense of belonging and In doing this podcast and exploring why we wanted to do this with our business, it's taught me so much about the psychology of people. One of the most impactful things I learned during this study was that loneliness is and can be just as damaging on a cellular level as alcoholism. And I guess on average, I don't know how they compare this exactly, but they said twice as damaging as obesity. Oh, wow. This loneliness that is becoming more of an epidemic because of social media and other factors in our new societies that we really want to help organizations that are treating those kind of things. And what I learned was the opposite of loneliness is belonging. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about belonging with the people that we interview on our podcast, which is called the Community of Big Hearts. We're trying to come up with a better and better template to have businesses give back to their communities and then in turn be supported by their communities. So it becomes this flywheel for businesses that are socially conscious. If businesses are sustainably profitable, they can sustainably give back. Mm -hmm. As long as they're going to be transparent and honest about their giving, it's the best platform for social change, in my opinion. Mm. That's our Community of Big Hearts initiative, and we have a new service coming out soon that's going to be a volunteer app, and we're launching it in Winnipeg to start. So in all of our conversations with people about volunteering, we realize that almost everybody wants to volunteer and help. I think it's just in our DNA to want to be of value to their community, but most people don't know how, think they don't have the time don't know where to find these things or don't think they have the skills to give back. We looked around to find a platform that does this well, and there wasn't any. So we solved the problem or we're solving the problem, I hope. We're paying a developer to build the app. And this is going to be at first an app for businesses to volunteer their staff's time in the community to a suite of different charities with curated volunteer experiences that will help the charity by facilitating volunteers, hopefully create good awareness and more donations to their charity. And on the business side, we think that, and we know because we've done this, we volunteer our staff for a half day every quarter, all of our office staff. It's mandatory. And we hope they do it as a team because it's amazing team building experience to go and do this as a team to give back to the community. Some business owners that I've talked to, their concern was, wow, like two days a year, like that's a lot of money for my office staff to do that. And I said, you know what, what we've learned is those two days that they go and volunteer, they come back, they're way more energized. Mm -hmm. They're so thankful to work for your company. Your Uh retention goes through the roof and the production that they have when they come back more than makes up for the missing two days. Mm. Big old morale boost. Yeah, exactly. So we feel this is hopefully going to be a win. Yeah, sounds like it. That's going to facilitate a lot more volunteering, a lot more further leverage that platform for social change that is business. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing to follow your heart and this idea about creating belonging, facilitating community, and now solving problems, Mm -hmm. right? There's a problem here. How do we connect volunteers to organizations? How do we do this? And you're solving that. And 
I've been listening to your podcast, Community of Big Hearts, from the beginning, mm-hmm. and amazing organizations, amazing people, and I'm really excited to see what your next season is going to look like. And we want to encourage everybody out there on our podcast to subscribe to Community of Big Hearts and listen to see what's coming up, especially if you're in an organization or a company that can be a part of this social change. Please check them out and join this passion. Thanks for that plug, Wall. October 4th is going to be the release of season four, I think it is. I can't keep track now. But, um, we're really excited about this season in particular because we're adding in business owners and not just charities and getting commitments from business owners to volunteer in the community wow. or learn what they're doing to create impact with their platform. Mm. I didn't know a lot about charities and I still feel a little bit of fish out of water when I'm talking charities, but businesses, I really know how to speak the language. And so, yeah, stay tuned guys. Excellent. That's so cool. A genius with a big heart. Wow. Best Mm -hmm. of both worlds, Stu. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It has been a great honor to connect with you today, to hear about your journey, your story through grief and loss, through coming to terms with your own inadequacies, with dealing with your shame with bringing the people in your life to come around you, having your special animal friend. There's Nimble. Who's Hi, Nimble. Nimble has entered the screen. Oh, I just wanted to kiss Daddy. Kiss. <laughs> so cute. Thank you for sharing your heart with us today. You have a big heart. You've done a lot in your community, and we are honored to call you a friend. And thank you for being on with us today. Make sure you say hello and goodbye to Lillian and Collins for us. I absolutely will. And I do want to say, guys, I'm honored to be on your podcast. I brag about you guys to my friends every time you come up and all the things that that you guys have done. And when I started listening to obstacles and opportunities one weekend, Lowell, I think, you know, I binged it. (laughs) So it's an awesome show. I'm just glad to be part of it. Oh, thank you. Well, until we can see each other again in person, know that our hearts are with yours and continue to know that you are doing great things, inspiring people, especially in business realm and volunteerism to change our communities, to give back, right? We only need so much. And now let's continue to help those who are in need. You're a great inspiration for that. I'm glad Parasport has been this theme that's connected us and keep going with that big heart of yours. Yeah. We look forward to connecting in real life again. Awesome. This was an absolute blast. I agree. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Stu. You guys. Bye-bye. Stu Starkey. What a man. A genius with a big heart. Yeah. He can't call himself a genius. But we can call him a genius. Yep. Stu is one of the (laughs) smartest people that I know. He has been gifted with knowing how to calculate numbers, with problem solving. And he took this obstacle, finding out that he was going to go blind, and he used it as a fuel to move forward. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, but he has talent and he works hard. And so he has done really, really well for himself and for his family. And now he's taking the success that he's had in his life and he's giving it back, giving back to his community, giving back to many communities and sharing that through Community Big Hearts, but also just by living big and loving. It's really neat to see his family grow and yeah. to see Collins and his wife and how they're connecting. We kind of seem like we're living somewhat similar lives. Oh, yeah. You two are so similar. It's crazy. The healing power of sport is definitely mm. true in both of our lives. When our lives were falling apart and the darkness was coming and it felt like there was so much of this future that was unknown and uncertain, finding a place to belong, finding a place that included us, finding a place to pursue dreams and and compete at elite levels. The para-sport movement has been huge for us. And we are better people because of sport. And it's helped us to make lifelong relationships and connections, but also to learn lessons from that that have propelled us into business and life. Yeah, you guys have so much in common, right down to your eye diseases being X-linked. And he was talking about how because they had a girl, she is a carrier of the disease. And that would have been the same with us. Mm -hmm. And because we had two boys, it is cut off. We did stop that with Lowell. But I did pass on my bad sense of humor. Yeah, but that's okay. (laughs) I can live with that. (laughs) You can live with that one. (laughs) That's another one in the books. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.